Q&A session. Mike has the first question, so Mike, kick us off. Thanks, thanks Jim for coming. Um, I think you're in a group that's probably well aware of things like Piper's you know, little vignette of moving to Florida in retirement mm, mm, yeah. and collecting seashells and the futility of that. But I'll preface this by saying I, I'm clear that there's no proof text on retirement. It's we live in the wealthiest time and perhaps culture in human history. Mm. And so it's a fairly relatively new phenomenon. But I'm wondering for you personally how you view the concept of retirement as you look at the scriptures, you know, kind of systematically and what might inform how we approach that as Christians and in light of what you've talked about um, this weekend. Mm. Yeah, great question. So right now I'm preaching through Ecclesiastes, and um, I think I'll have uh, clearer ideas once I've preached through Ecclesiastes 12. But, but I just want to read, um, well, I just want to read uh, this passage from Ecclesiastes 12. Um, and, and, and so it says, remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come. And I think he's t it's going to be clear that he's describing, you know, old age. And the years draw near of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain. So, um, you know, the, uh, the days go dark. Verse 3, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble. I think the idea is you've got like these bardy guards, and now they've gotten old and their hands shake. And the strong men are bent. You know, you can envision an, an old man who used to be big, strong dude, and now he's bent over maybe walking with a cane. And the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut when the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. I mean, it sounds like, you, you know, your, your, your body, I read an article about this in the Wall Street Journal, your body produces something like melatonin, which kind of makes it where you go into this deep, restorative, um, re regenerative sleep until you get to be about 50 years old, at which point that, your body's production of that chemical is drastically reduced, and your body doesn't regenerate itself when you sleep because you don't sleep as deeply, and, and you wake up at, at not very loud sounds. Um, and then it says in verse 5, they are afraid also of what is high, and terrors in, are in the way. So, you know, that you're fearful of everything. I mean, um, I, I watch my sons play basketball, and my 10th my, uh, grade son, the 15-year-old, the other night my goodness, there was a loose ball on the floor, and he threw himself on the floor. And I was thinking to myself, I would not do that. <laughs> I'd be afraid of breaking an arm or something, you know. You just, but when you're young, you just you just throw yourself in. Um, and then it, it says, um, the, the, the almond tree blossoms. Almond trees put off this white flower. The grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. Um, so... You know, there's a connection between testosterone and, and the drive, not just for sex, but for doing other things. And um, when desire fails, you're, gonna, you're probably going to lose the drive to do not a lot of things. And um, so I, on the one hand, there's a, a friend of mine whose father-in-law um, taught until he was 79 years old. He's, he's a business teacher at, co at a college. And he didn't retire at 65. He kept teaching until he was 79. And he said, that's the best thing I've ever done. 
On the other hand, we could probably all point to examples of people that we feel like stayed too long. I mean, uh, Mitch and I were talking yesterday about a well-known person in Christian ministry who, when I first met him, he was like 62 years old, and he said he was going to go 10 more years. If he had retired at 72 and walked away, he would have been everybody's hero. He stayed until he was 78, and he was fired in disgrace. And he's now on everybody's bad list. His word is like, his name is like a swear word, you know. Um, so I, I think there's a there's a danger in staying too long. Um, have you seen this? There's this movie called what's it called? A Man Called Otto. Have you seen that movie? Tom Hanks. That is a really interesting movie. This um, Tom Hanks's character, he's kind of forced out of his job. And he, and he tries multiple times to commit suicide, and then he starts loving people. Then he, you know, he can't, he, it's like he fails in killing himself, so he decides, okay, I'm just going to invest myself in other people's lives. And he gives himself away. So, you know, I think, I think you don't have to stay in a position to continue to follow Christ. And, and I, I don't know what all this looks like, but I know there's going to come a time when we're going to be incapacitated, and we're going we're gonna to be unable to continue and probably at some point before that, it's best if we don't continue in the roles that we've been in for a long time. And, I, you know, I, I don't know what all that looks like. And Yeah. All right. Ryan? Yeah, I was just curious. Um, the, the setting boundaries and here are the windows for my work, for my kids, for my family. It, that was a, a really great concept I want to give more thought to. But one of the questions I had was just to, as we think through setting those windows and boundaries, um, we are moving as a culture towards an environment that's very global, that's very connected, that's very online all the time. And just kind of um, any advice for setting those boundaries when the professional environment is moving towards that kind of an expectation and the way business works. Yeah. Great question. I'm just going to talk about writing for me personally and um, with reference to some people that I've heard also talk about writing that I disagree with. Um, so, so for me, I feel like I know my best time to write. I mean, I, I like to write. I want to write. I'm driven to write. But I, I've, I've learned when it works for me to write and I've learned when it doesn't work for me to write. And so I think wisdom in my case is don't try to write in one of those times that doesn't work. So if I can have from 8 a.m. to noon, man, you can have the rest of my day. But if I can have that block of time from 8 a.m. to noon, I'm going to make some hay. I'm going to, I'm, my mind is fresh. I'm creative. I feel like I could conquer the world from 8 a.m. to noon. But, but after I eat lunch, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a little bit sleepy. I'm, um, uh, to be quite honest with you, that's when I want to write email, emails. I don't want to. I don't want to spend the best hours of my life writing emails. I, I'd like to write books that are going to last. Um, when I'm groggy and don't really want to be doing this, that's when I want to write emails. Um, it's also when I want to exercise because it, if I if I can exercise like mid afternoon, it, it kind of refreshes me, gives me a little boost, helps me to push through the rest of the day energizes me, gets the blood flowing, you know, does, there's probably all kinds of good chemicals released into my bloodstream as a result of working out. 
Um, so that's when, I wanna, that's when I like to exercise. I don't want to exercise at 9 a.m. in the morning. I'm, I'm going great at 9 a.m. in the morning. But at like 3 in the afternoon, that's perfect um, for me to exercise. I, I read this guy, and, you know, I'm kind of negatively disposed to this guy anyway because I think he's a liberal, and, um, and I don't appreciate things he writes. But I read him, and he, he, he was giving advice on writing, and he said, in my opinion, he's not a good writer. He's, so he's liberal. He, does, he believes bad things, and then I think he makes bad arguments for believing bad things. And then I think he, he's, he writes poorly written bad arguments. But his counsel was, you should write in every like spare minute that you have. And he talked about how he will, between classes, you know, he's got like a 15-minute break, and he will go back to his office and write in that 15-minute break. And I'm like, well, that's why your stuff's no good. Because at the end of a class, you know, you've been interacting with students. You're, you're, you're kind of, you, you sort of need to refresh. And, and it's a great time to be interacting with people. It's a terrible time to try to go get your head back into that thing you're writing and, and get back into your train of thought. Because as soon as you do that, you got to go to class. Because you, and your window's closed. That's a dumb thing to do. So I don't know how that applies in your situation, but... You know, my, my counsel is recognize when you're best at doing which things and then try to so arrange your life that, that um, I mean, we can't always control it. You know, sometimes, sometimes if I'm up against a hard deadline, I'm going to have to write at 6 p.m. But if, I, if I've got my druthers, I want to be hanging out with my kids at 6 p.m., not trying to get my brain back into that argument that I was making. It seems to me what's inherent in all of that is that you're not letting life sort of come at you yeah. and you're not always staying in react mode. I, I, um, you have to, to plan and be intentional and put forth the effort uh, or else this kind of stuff you're talking about will never happen. Yeah, yeah, and, and you have to pay attention to yourself. I mean, I've got a friend, John Wilsey. I don't know how, I could not do what he does, but he writes from like 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. And, and then he sleeps in in the morning, but that's his, win man, I... 10 p.m., I want to go to bed, you know? So, but it works for him. So we have to pay attention to ourselves. Other questions? Perry? You know, within the corporate world, we spend an awful lot of, awful lot of time developing strategy, planning, executing against goals. What is it that you've done that kind of within your life, within that arena that's helped guide and put together an action plan, if you will, hmm. toward um, meeting those personal objectives hmm. that God has put on your heart? That's a great question. Um, uh, I think, I, think I, I knew, I mean, I, I knew when I was in college that because of the way that I had been helped by things that people like C.S. Lewis wrote, that I wanted to try to help others in that way. And so um, that has prompted me to try to pay attention to um, good writing that I appreciate, but, but even more important than that, discerning why it is that, that I appreciate certain things. And really what the kinds of books that I like to read most are the ones that, that you read this author and you can tell that guy has meditated on the text of Scripture. That guy has really given himself to the Bible, and he, 
he has really thought deeply about what's going on in the Bible. So in, in, my, in my field, this, you can only write that way if you are doing work in the original language texts of the Bible and you're, and you're actually contemplating those texts. And I think this, this extends into other realms because it, all realms are going to have like the fundamentals, the kind of basic building blocks of what people are doing. And all realms are going to need people who return to the fundamentals and think deeply about them and see new things in them. And, you know, this is what, I think this is what makes great coaches. You know, for Lombardi to be like, this is a football. And, and we're going to start at the, at the fundamentals and we're going to focus on those. Um, uh, my, my college coach, Norm DeBryan, I got to go to Fayetteville last, last year and, and, and I was listening to him. I got to be with him and he gave me a tour of the new facility at the University of Arkansas, which is fabulous. Part of it's named after him. And, and he was telling stories. And at one point, he, he was talking about his last season, the season that he retired. And he said, we, we started the season and he, he said, we couldn't make a routine play and we're losing all these games. And he said, so we, we, we looked at who we had and, and we thought to ourselves, we've got to make the routine. We've got to be able to catch a ground ball and throw somebody out at first. And he said, we unredshirted a guy and all of a sudden we could make a routine play. And they, and they went on to win the, win the conference. They won the SEC that season. So that, you know, recognizing what's happening what's going wrong, and then, and then asking yourself, how do I fix this from the fundamental level? You know, that, that's, um, so in, in my, I guess in my writing, I've, I've, wanted, I've wanted to cultivate being somebody who meditates on the text from the original languages. And that, and that kind of basic building block, like if I, if I wasn't a biblical scholar, if I was a theologian, I think I would want I would, I would want to really master Latin and read uh, the great theological texts in, of the history of Christian thought in Greek and Latin, because I think that, that sort of fundamental work in the original language texts is what would enable me to make a, an original contribution in that field. And so, you know, for my baseball coach, um, what are the fundamentals? Well, catching a ground ball and making the routine play is fundamental. Um, what personnel do I have? Well, these guys aren't getting the job done. And, and where can I find somebody that can do the job? You know, I think those kinds, of, those kinds of questions, seeing what your objective is, seeing what the obstacles are to the objective. I mean, it, um, I coach this high school baseball team. Um, I could show you my roster, and the guys that I thought were going to be our shortstop last year are the guys that you would think would, would have been the shortstop. You know, they, I mean, they, they look good doing it. They got great athletic ability. Those guys couldn't catch a ground ball. They couldn't do it. And about 10 games in, we're, we're like three and seven, you know, three wins, seven losses. And we figure out those guys aren't going to get it done. We put our center fielder at shortstop, and all of a sudden we start winning games because we're making the routine play, you know. So I, I think, I think um, being able to think about wh where am I succeeding, where am I failing, and what are the fundamental elements that go into this I don't know if that's helpful to you, but that's the way I think about it. I want to get to your questions, but if you guys will indulge me and let me ask a question of my own. Um, so when I, when I daydream, it's not long before my thoughts kind of turn to the glory 
of the eternal state. Mm. So I'm wondering, how can you kind of whet our appetites mm. for what work will look like in the eternal state mm. for believers? Yeah, great question. So, you know, I was talking about how in Ecclesiastes 1, 8 through 11, Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun. And as I was contemplating that passage recently, I, th I really think the kinds of things he's talking about are the kinds of things that later get articulated by Israel's prophets. So new covenant, new heart, um, new Eden, um, new creation. And I think that... Um, Solomon is basically saying, I can't bring about this new state of affairs, but the Lord Jesus does. And, and I think that the way I understand regeneration, it's like the spiritual side of the resurrection body. So I think that in a sense, spiritually, we've been made alive in the way that physically we'll be made alive when we're raised from the dead. And so um, in, a, in a new heavens and new earth where we are liberated from this mortal flesh and from the weakness uh, and the ignorance and the, um, uh, the waywardness that characterizes us. And I'm taking that language from Hebrews 5 when he speaks of how the priests under the Old Covenant, um, because he himself was uh, ignorant and wayward and beset with weakness, he could, he could intercede for others who were likewise. And, and it won't be that way anymore. We won't be ignorant. We won't be wayward. We won't be beset with weakness. It'll be like um, we're free. We, we enjoy the, the freedom of the glory of the children of God, as, as Paul says in Romans 8. Um, and, and I think we, we should definitely meditate on these things and, and, um, and live out of the glory of it. All right, Wes, and then Chris Haniel, I saw your hand. <clears throat> Uh, my wife is a very picky reader. Uh, generally, I've given her dozens of theology books over the year, and she'll read them, not like the writing, and put them down. One of the exceptions is Your God's Glory and Salvation Through Judgment. Uh, she said it was very clear, compelling, insightful, uh, and kind of stirred her to want to read more in, in Scripture. And so uh, my question, even just thinking of in my own preaching, wanting to desire for that in my writing, to be clear and compelling, uh, not just presenting good ideas, but presenting them beautifully. You've talked a lot about your writing. Who are some authors that you've kind of admired over the years in your own study uh, that you think do that very well, who have kind of shaped your own writing today? So I was an English major in college. And so I'm going to start with those, those writers. Um, I mean, J.R.R. Tolkien's prose, I think, is beautiful. Uh, I think that uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, prose, not, not so much as, I mean, his fiction is fun to read, and it's insightful, and it's thought-provoking, but I think his, his other writings, nonfiction writings, are, he has such a, a, a way with phrases. He, he's really, really fun to read in that way. Um, so, and then the, so I would say read the greats of the English literary tradition. Dickens, Shakespeare, um, and, and with some of these, like with, with the poets, with Shakespeare and others, I think you should try to memorize poetry. If you want to be a better writer and a better thinker, I would encourage you to memorize poetry. I can remember when I, when I, I mean, I can't recite it right now, 
But at one point, I was uh, memorizing and reciting to myself um, the poem by, I think it's John Keats, On First Looking into Chapman's Homer. And as I was memorizing and reciting that poem, I can remember thinking to myself, he has, he has communicated these ideas in the most succinct and most muscular way possible. And by muscular, what I mean is there's no flab. There is, there's no fat on those sentences. It is all muscle. It is all force in, in what he's communicating. And um, that is really instructive for formulating ideas and then trying to communicate those ideas with clarity. So I would say read great literature and memorize great poetry. Chris? So you highlighted prioritizing our wife and our family. And I'm just trying to think about that prioritization and laying down of my life in combination with trying to lay down my life for the church, the local church, and Christ. What kind of things do you think about when you try to balance those as you go about your day-to-day? -day? Yeah, it's a great question. So I want my wife to be on board, and I want, like, th there have been times in our lives when um, something terrible has happened to somebody in our church, and, and they're in the hospital late at night, or I can remember this on one occasion, um, somebody called me and said, I was just with this guy. He's in a terrible car accident. He's now in the hospital. Somebody needs to go share the gospel with him. And, um, and in these situations, because, because I've kept things in their windows and because, um, because I have spent adequate time with the kids and because my wife knows I love her and she's confident that she's my priority, she will say, you need to go. I want you to go. And I'm like, well, it's time to put the kids in bed and do fam deeds. This is more important. You need to go do this. So that, that's the way I want it to be. Um, I don't want it to be the case that, you know, the family is sacrificed on the altar of, of the ministry. I don't want that to ever be the case. And I don't want my wife or my kids ever to resent our local church or the people of our local church because they feel like... Um, I don't get to be with my dad because he's with those people. Um, and, you know, I think this is one of those things where there, there are going to be times when I have to make sacrifices. And there, there are going to be times where the church is going to be more demanding than the family is. And the family's going to. But we do the best we can. We pray. And we, I mean, I, I'll communicate with my kids. Like when um, times if I'm going to, go out of the country for, let's say, a two-week block, and I'm going to miss, say, some baseball games or something like that, or, or something, which I hate. I hate missing my kids' stuff. But I'll sit them down, and I'll tell them, um, you know that I love to be at your ball games, and you know that I want to be at your ball games. but I want you to know, I, and I want you to experience that your dad is supremely committed to the gospel. And, and I want you to know that the only thing that's taken me away from being at your ball games is my attempt to go and minister the gospel, and, and that the eternal destinies of these people and their souls and this ministry, um, I, love your, I love you, and your ball games matter, but this, is, this matters, and, and that's why I'm going. It's a question I imagine a lot of men have, Chris. I'm glad you asked that. Anyone else? 
Tyler. Um, can you talk a little bit to uh, if if we're sitting here identifying, hey, I think there's progress that's been made, but there's still work to be done, or man, like I've got to get on some of this stuff. How do you go about resetting um, or reorganizing, I guess, whatever priorities and things like that? And how do you start that process and bring a wife and kids along? Um, and you know, also how, how to make sure we're prepared to withstand it when Satan and human nature and everything, you just want nothing more than to resist that. Mm. Yeah. Great question. Um, I don't know. Are you familiar with this book? Uh, I think it's called extreme ownership or, or maybe it's extreme leadership by Jocko Willink. Do you know this book? Uh, is it extreme ownership? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is, I think that's really a great leadership book. And, and the, the, the idea of taking ownership of everything that happens and taking responsibility for everything that happens and being prepared to um, address what we can control um, in that whole process, I think that's, that's significant. Um, the other thing that, that comes to mind in what you're saying is, you know, I, I, I often think in terms of athletic analogies, and I think the best coaches are coaches that are always making adjustments. And they're the coaches that are able to make adjustments. They're coaches that are able to see what's happening in the game and know what needs to change if we're going to be in position to win. And, and so, you know, some of these guys that have been named, like Nick Saban and Bill Belichick, um, these are guys that they were able to make adjustments. And often the second half looked very different than the first half. And or the fourth quarter in a Super Bowl. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, you know, the same thing goes for our lives. We don't want to just go on autopilot and keep doing the same the same thing that's running the same play that's been failing all game long. We want to say, okay, I've been trying this and it's not working. How do I how do I think about recognize what's happening and see where I can actually make some progress here? And I think that's just a result of, of being involved, being attentive, um, think, investing time and thought and energy in the whole process. Um, so I don't know if I hit everything that was in your question, but those are the two things that come to mind. All right, time for one last question. So, so Rich was asking about the fact that, you know, Jim's been talking this weekend from uh, from Genesis 1 and 2 about the Lord's uh, command to Adam to subdue the earth, to exercise dominion over it. That's not a very popular idea in our culture where the prevailing thought is the world would be much better off if humans weren't on the planet. So how is it that you kind of make that idea palatable to the world around you if, if that's even possible or something we should be aiming at? Yeah, so I think that it, it really stems from a godless perspective to say, the world would be a better place without humans. It's kind of like saying the world would be a better place without God. And um, the world wouldn't be a place without God, according to the, the biblical understanding of, of things. So I think in the same way that, that um, we would, I would want to argue, um, chaos is not good. And, and disorder is not good. And what God does at creation, I think the, 
the, the Genesis account, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void. And what the Lord does is he forms it, and then he fills it. So the first three days, it's like he's creating you know, light and darkness. That's um, day one. And then on, on the corresponding fourth day, he puts the great lights in the sky, the sun, the moon, the stars. And then it's like he forms uh, the heavens on, on day two, and then he fills uh, the heavens with the birds. Uh, and, and maybe it's the seas, I can't remember. And then the third day, um, you know, again, I, there's, a, there's a forming and a filling. He forms the dry land, and then he populates the dry land. And I would, I would argue that without humans, the world would be a chaos. And the, and the way that we want to go about subduing the earth, I think, again, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, is a forming and filling kind of way. Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. And we want to form it so that it, it's actually better. And destroying the creation is not, it's not part of that. So I think we should, we should uh, seek to apply our intelligence, our ingenuity, our stunning human creativity to forming and um, subduing the earth in ways that actually make it better and not destroy it. And I think we're capable of this. And there's a degree to which the people who will be rubbed the wrong way by your saying we talked about subduing the earth and exercise dominion of it, over it won't be pleased, however, whatever package you put in. It's yeah. antithetical to the, the mind that isn't guided by the wisdom of God. Mm-hmm. Doug? Well, what I'm going to ask is basically the, the conditions, obviously, when Moses was writing the story of Genesis were different. Uh, in the present age, we have gr- far greater command over the natural world mm-hmm. uh, and our potential potentiality to destroy it mm-hmm. by our efforts to subdue it in, in a negative sense. So I, I was just wondering how to, essentially, how to frame the word subdue in what seems to be called by contemporary society as the Anthropocene age when man is the primary mover of any change in the world. Yeah, so I think, I think one of the ways in which we need to push back on the culture is in the idea that a concept like subdue is a bad, a bad word, or even a concept like for uh, one person to submit to another is a somehow offensive concept. I think we need to, we need to argue that Look, if, if the Bible says that this is what we need to do, that's good for us, and that's righteous. And, and then I think there are so many cases in which we're going to have to say, um, this looks like to me, this looks like the right course of action to me, and I'm going to take, take this course of action, and I'm going to try to mitigate damage, and I'm going to pursue this on faith. I'm going to pursue this by faith. So uh, I'm going to trust that... that um, the Lord is leading me to do this in this way, and I'm going to trust that he's going to mitigate any harm that, that could come of it. And if I become aware that there's, there, there's harm that's being done, I'm going to try to address that also. I know there's so much more that it would be enjoyable and helpful to talk about. Would you please help me communicate our gratitude for Jim Hamilton for being with us this weekend?
right. Well, let me close us in prayer, and then the 2024 Christ Memorial Church Men's Retreat will be officially over. Join with me in prayer, please. Father, I want to offer you thanks and praise for our brother Jim. Thank you for saving him. Thank you for gifting him with gifts that have been used this weekend to build up his brother's here at Christ Memorial Church and in these other churches that have participated in this men's retreat. We pray that you would bless his ministry to the saints at Kenwood Baptist Church. We pray that Jim would be faithful to Jill, his wife, that he would be faithful to the gospel, that he would never stray from it to the right or to the left, that he would be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ always, that his life would never be an occasion for the Lord Jesus to be a byword in anyone's mind or mouth. We pray that you would likewise bless his ministry at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary and to the church at large through his writing and speaking ministries. You have been gracious to your people uh, through this brother, and we want to say thank you for him. Father, we want to say thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. When we think about living to the glory of God, no one has done that like our elder brother, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his willingness to submit to you, to come not to do his will, but the will of you who sent him, even to the point of being obedient to death, even death on a cross in our place, bearing our sin payment making atonement for our sins and bringing us by his death and resurrection, cleansing and forgiveness and adoption and salvation and redemption and eternal life. Thank you for your dear son. Give us grace by the Holy Spirit, whom you and your son have sent to indwell us. Give us grace to live for your glory, to work for your glory. Father, we pray for safe travels for the men. As they head back to their various places, we pray for Jim's safe travels back to Louisville, to his family, and to the church that he shepherds. And we thank you for Singing Hills. We thank you for this retreat. And we thank you for the food that we're about to receive. You provide for us so abundantly our daily bread. More than that, we're thankful for the bread who came down from heaven, the Lord Jesus Christ. Give us grace to feed on him by faith all the way to the end. We thank you for this retreat. We thank you for your dear son, and we pray in his name. Amen. Men, can I leave you with a blessing? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Thank you for coming to the retreat.